Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Welcome to another exciting uh, podcast with two of my favorite real-world data, real-world evidence experts. Today, we're going to be talking about what the impact is of bias in clinical research and, and what are some of the things that we can do to avoid it. And this is coming up as recent as within the last week or so in a very positive way with a, a regulatory response from a recent ODEC taking a look at real-world data being used. So fantastic to see. It's front and center in all of our minds. But what are we actually talking about here? What is the bias that we have to be concerned about? How can we incorporate real-world data into our clinical research and really move it along? So today, to help us with this discussion, I have two of, of as I mentioned, our regulatory and real-world data experts here with me, both Laura and Sesh. I'll give them both a moment to just briefly introduce themselves. And they're going to help us define the specific types of bias we should be thinking about in clinical research, as well as how to consider those biases specifically when we're talking about external control arms. So before we jump in there, let me give a, a chance to each of my guests here to do a, a quick introduction. Laura, if you want to go first. Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Laura Fernandez. I work as the Senior Statistical Director here at COTA. And previously, I worked at the FDA as a Senior Reviewer in Oncology, Hematology, Drug Approvals. I am really excited to speak about bias and how we can uh, minimize it in ECAs when we use real-world data in clinical trial research. Excellent. Thank you, Laura. And Sash. Yeah. Thank you, Sandy and Laura. Very excited to be here. Sesh Shinivasan. I'm from Deloitte and I lead our um, life sciences R&D product strategy for Deloitte. So work with all top pharmaceutical companies strategizing on their data and analytics and how they should set themselves up to get the maximum out of data and everything from clinical data to real world data, of course, the topic for today. So work extensively with them and have a good understanding of that, the pharma landscape. So a little bit about my background. I have um, a strong data science background and I used to run a lot of uh, clinical trials for the U.S. Army prior to joining um, Deloitte. So have experience all the way from touching data all the way through the submissions. I'm very happy to be part of this conversation today. Fantastic. We are clearly in good hands here today and glad to be able to help support this conversation. I'm Sandy Leonard, the Chief Commercial Officer here at CODA. And before we start to get into the content here, I wanted to, to set a little bit of context here. So as we talk about bias, this really is important for us to be thinking about and considering because it has some pretty significant consequences if we don't. Obviously, it can, if we're not managing and addressing and considering bias on the front end of all of the clinical development work, it can have some significant downstream impacts. Everything from you know, patients receiving poor treatment, inaccurate diagnoses, or experiencing ultimately delays in diagnoses, all driving towards that, that patient outcome. 
So we want to make sure that the evidence, the research that's being progressed through is sound and, and that we've managed through those biases. We also want to keep in mind that there are other impacts if you don't manage bias correctly. And I would say, first and foremost, it's trust. We have to make sure that the research we're putting out there all together is, is trusted. And if you haven't scientifically managed for that bias, it can not only impact the value of that evidence that gets developed, but the reputation of the researchers, the life science sponsors, the partners, and the data sources that are all a part of that evidence that is, is coming out into the marketplace. And that to me is, is a very important thing to keep in mind because what happens when you lose trust? Well, you don't know, you don't know what to rely on, whether it's as you're submitting information to a regulatory body or to a payer, or ultimately as a healthcare provider is looking at, at the research and publications as they try to become best informed as to how to care for their patients. So want to just kind of set that context as we get deep into bias and the impact as we think about clinical trials and ultimately external control arms, that there is a, a true business imperative to manage for that bias in a very transparent way. So maybe getting started off, Laura, I'd love to hear a little bit from you around, you know, as you're thinking about examples of, of bias and, and maybe where we should be, be cautious of. Totally. So during my time at the FDA, I worked on this particular application that was actually presented at an oncology advisory committee. It's called an ODAC. And in this particular application, the sponsor submitted the data to the FDA and mentioned that the response rate in this particular patient population was a particular number. It got inflated just because they artificially, just because they did not apply the criteria the resist criteria correctly in assigning tumor responses to their patients. And so this kind of artificially inflated their tumor response than what it actually was. And we then presented the application in a public setting, the advisory committee. And it kind of, the underlying message was that there was this kind of distrust that was kind of created. And the company could have saved time and effort uh, by not going into a public hearing at an advisory committee, if they had done their due diligence and avoided doing uh, a slightly seemingly easy mistake that uh, they could have avoided in their application. And so uh, to your point, Sandy, yes, when we overlook things that could be avoided, we create this bias in our presentation of the results or in the way we conduct our clinical trials. And the idea is not to have this scenario where there is this sense of doubt in whatever has been presented. And so you want, at all times, you want to have this integrity uh, in your trial and your trial results. Uh, that is uh, of utmost importance to have this confidence, not just for the regulators, but for the patients who are ultimately going to receive these drugs. Uh, at the end of the day, we are all answerable to the patients. It is uh, the patients who count on these medications. And so the concept of trust is very important and avoiding bias in our analysis and reporting is kind of a key issue. So I, I wonder, Sash, if you've seen some examples where things have gone well, where, where there's been that forethought that, that Laura mentioned. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, um, 
glad you asked me that question, Sandy, because it's not all doom and gloom, right? The, the way you mentioned, like, it's all about bringing therapy to patients faster, especially when we're talking about rare diseases, it becomes even more important. So one success story that comes to mind, and this happened during COVID, so it kind of skated by, is this great example where this this drug called Cosilogo, they got FDA approval after a 17-year development timeline, which is just massive. And it's for this um, rare disease called neurofibromatosis type 1, and it's a very aggressive uh, pediatric um, disease. And to date, there are no therapy in the market. So this is first of its kind. And they did successfully use external um, control arms derived from you know, prior uh, clinical trials to establish natural history of the disease. And as you know, in rare diseases, that is a big battle itself to establish that, right? So they were able to successfully do that with external control arms. And not only this is significantly impacting, you know, so many children's lives, like I said, this is first of its kind to get approved, but also it has a huge financial outlook for the companies, for the manufacturers, right? And so, you know, some of the predictions say that, that the market for this by 2026 is like over 200 million. So these have like massive implications in the best positive way if done right, but couldn't agree with both of you, it's all about trust, right? You you have to be transparent. You have to be very careful before you embark on these things, right? So you end up with the best result for the patients. Definitely. And and a 17-year <laughs> development life cycle is is not ideal. And and so one of the promises that we're hearing is that external control arms, the use of real-world data can help to accelerate both from a timing, but also thinking about the best use of resources to be able to bring these innovative, life-changing and life-saving drugs into the market without compromising the quality of the research and ultimately patient, patient safety and the effectiveness. And so I wonder, and Laura, I'm going to throw this one over to you. When we're, when we're thinking about creating an ECA, trying to, to maximize those benefits, what are we looking at as far as for, you know, what type of bias and, and how should we be thinking about that as ECA as a tool to avoid some of that bias? So, so what we're trying to do in any clinical trial, uh, whether it's with an ECA, uh, where you have an external control arm or a randomized clinical trial. So what they are, the goal of a clinical trial is to make sure that the treatment effect that is claimed uh, or attributed to the drug of intervention or the investigational drug is captured correctly. So what we're trying to do is get an internally valid estimate of the benefit of using the drug. So we're setting up expectations that are that on an average, what is possible for a patient who is likely to expect when they take the drug. So to do this in a randomized clinical trial, you have randomization. But when you are using an external control arm, in the absence of these tools of randomization, blinding, which is also a very important tool to avoid bias, in the absence of these big fundamental tools that we get in RCT, we need to rely on other statistical methods for ensuring that we capture this true effect as best as we can. And this is what this means is that this true effect that we see of the drug should not be explained away by some other factor that could have influenced the treatment difference. Imagine that you have a higher proportion of healthier patients on the investigational arm, which would make the control arm look worse because you, are, you have all these sick patients on the control arm. 
then so this is what we would call what is called confounding bias because uh, the way you have selected your patients you uh, you have put either sicker patients on the control arm or you put more healthier patients on the investigational arm so you've confounded the treatment effect or you could have like a use of different procedures for assessment of results for example a different set of investigators might look at patients on the investigational arm and a different set of or you apply a different criteria for patients on the control arm and so you could have this bias introduced based on how you assess assessments and this would be something like a misclassification bias that could make one arm look better or worse than the other so so in the end when you try to get the difference between the investigational and the control arm you really don't know whether this is artificially caused or if it's a true effect of the drug that we're trying to capture over here very interesting. And and so you hit upon a couple of the biases that we should be thinking about. Sasha, what are the other biases? What should we be focused on here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Laura touched upon some of this, but there are you know, five types of biases. So I'm just going to list them out. And we have covered this de in detail in our blog. So instead of taking up this time to explain each and every one, because we are going to be talking about Examples. Examples are always fun and interesting to touch upon these. But quickly, the five biases are selection bias, confounding bias, misclassification or information bias, immortal time bias, and temporal bias. So those are the five biases. But one thing to keep in mind is in an ideal world, there, can, there should be no bias, right? That's, that's what you're aiming for, but it seldom happens. Even in a randomized control trial, sometimes you will end up with these biases and, and that's, that's, the, that's the fact of science. So what can you do? You can, of course, take some precautions right at the beginning. So which is why that planning and design that you do right at the beginning, it's so crucial. So you have to be very thoughtful. You have to carefully evaluate what are you planning to study? What type of data I should use? How should I handle my analysis, right? If, if I end up with these biases, how, how should I think about it? So pre-plan all of this ahead of time so that'll at least give you a good chance of minimizing these. Like I said, it's impossible to completely prevent them, but what can you do right at the beginning, right? Most importantly, think about missing data because there are certain things like missing data which could give you multiple biases. It could give rise to multiple biases. So, so be careful and thoughtful about that type of information. Another one, which we've talked about on our podcast series many times is, in, especially when it comes to real world data, important things like what's the provenance, what's the governance, especially some of these variables are getting transformed. What is the logic behind that, right? Because you're always going after these um, variables at the covariance level, at the outcomes level. So you need to know what, what, what path has it taken to get to where we are at uh, you know, in, in that analyzed state. So some of these things you, you have to be very mindful. And again, we've written extensively in all our blogs. We've published, you know, four to five blogs till date. We talk about all of this. So definitely go into them. And we'll be touching upon some of that in this podcast as well. Before we get into some examples, I actually want to ask you a, a question, Sash. Is there a way you've just listed off all of these different biases and, and the challenges that, that each of them bring? Is there a way to design a study without any bias? Again, you can definitely minimize it. 
right? So what can you do at the beginning? That's a great question. Actually, I don't want to keep referring our audience, our listeners to our blog, but we covered this in our last blog where we're talking about five steps on how you should design your ECA, right? It's literally a roadmap to answer the question that you just asked, Sandy. So things like start by clearly defining your research question, right? Whether you want an external control or not is not an afterthought. It, you should start over there, right? And start by clearly defining what is the disease indication in your observation, right? How long am I observing my uh, patients for? What is the timeline? What is the outcome? What are the covariates, the confounding bias that Lara talked about? Like, what are the covariates that could potentially contribute? So start over there, right? Once you have all of that very well defined in the form of your research question, Go into identifying your data source. That's where the fit for purpose FFP, and I'm sure our listeners have heard about this in detail, but that FFP fit for purpose data comes into picture, right? Should be timely, complete, relevant, right? That the trust that you were talking about earlier, that starts with the data, right? And then you go into your analysis plan, right? How should the analytic approach be? How am I going to handle uh, the different design elements, right? And, you know, how am I going to you know, control for the approaches, especially if there are missing data or incomplete information? How am I going to handle that? How am I going to handle my bias? So kind of, again, to the point that I was saying that design and planning is so important at the beginning. That is the only way for you to make sure that you can foolproof yourself in minimizing these biases. Excellent. Well, and, and so, Laura, I'm curious, do you have any good examples to share of, of really addressing this and, and that proactive approach in practice. Definitely. Yes, yes. So so in October of last year, this lovely example that was discussed at an advisory committee again, it was for Ombortama. And uh, this drug was for neuroblastoma with, with the central nervous system or leptomeningeal metastasis. And in this particular drug application, there were so many of these uh, biases that we are talking about today that were discussed. So what happened is in this particular drug application, data from a single center within the U.S. with 94 patients formed uh, the basis of a single arm trial. And an external control was created for this particular single arm trial with patients from a central German childhood registry. So the registry was based in Germany to create this external control. Patients within the U.S. were recruited or enrolled from 2004 until 2019, whereas the registry had data from 1990 until 2015. So there is a slight overlap of the period, but, but right off the bat, right? Right off the bat, what are the two biases that you can think of when I mention the study setup? The first one that comes to mind is selection bias because the registry is based in Germany and you're comparing them to patients based in the U.S. So there is no overlap in the patients that, were, that are being studied. And this is important because the standard of care that we are comparing to over here is no treatment after two relapses. And so we are comparing patients who received the drug versus those who did not receive any drug. And so this selection bias is introduced because there could be differences. And this was actually discussed at the ODAC, that there were differences in the way patients were treated in the U.S. versus those treated in this German registry. 
The second uh, bias that uh, comes to mind is the temporal bias that Shesh mentioned. The database, even though there is an overlap, it is not contemporaneous. If you look at all the patients from 1990 up till 2015, and how does this induce a bias, you might ask. This is because as the standard of care changes, patients are more likelier to live longer. So they are more likely to have better prognosis. So when you, if you choose patients that are much older or from an older era, you induce this temporal bias where you make the control arm look bad and thereby make the investigational arm look better than it actually is. So this treatment difference that we're looking at looks much bigger when you introduce this temporal bias that favors the investigational arm. So, yes, many issues like this were discussed in this particular application at the ODAC. It's, it sounds as though in this situation, there was a lot to be managed through and some of this could have been prevented, right? Thinking, thinking about that forward thinking, the planning and identifying the question and the fit for purpose data for that question. Totally. What Shesh was mentioning earlier, so many of these things could have been avoided if they had thought about in the, the first step that you do when you're creating an ECA is identifying a fit for purpose database. And the steps in selecting a fit for purpose database, we had outlined this earlier. We spoke about this at large. One of that is comparability of the patient populations. You know, how complete is your database and how applicable it is to the, to the research question. And so going through all those steps really helps in avoiding all these seemingly simple biases that, that arise in the creation of an ECA. Well, and oftentimes it seems like a, a simple thing, something like picking the, the and defining the index date, right? And that's not nearly as simple as it sounds. You are so right, Lynn. Sandy, this is this was also this was also an issue with this particular application. The selection of the index date gives rise to what we call immortal time bias. And in a nutshell, it refers to including a period of time when the event of interest could not have occurred, or there is no chance for the patient to experience that event. And so because you are including this artificial period of time, you make the comparator look worse than the investigational arm by introducing this immortal time bias. So how exactly did this happen in this particular trial is that to initiate this drug, omburtamab, the patients had to have relapsed on two prior therapies. They had to have a relapse on two therapies. And so... How would you choose an index date then? So you had to have uh, relapse on therapy one, relapse on therapy two, and then you start umbartumab. So to get an equivalent set of patients in the real world setting, they would now need to identify what is this index date? When do they actually start this period of observation? Should they start it from the start of index date from the start of therapy one, or should they start it on the start of relapse of therapy two? In the application, they actually started on the start of therapy two. And this is what caused the index date bias is because patients on the ombatumab arm started ombatumab after they relapsed on therapy two, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this period of time when you are still on therapy two 
and you have to survive therapy too to participate in the drug Umbatumab. So, so patients who actually died after relapsing on this second therapy would still be considered in the control arm, but they would not have been considered in the investigational arm because they would have died, right? So you have created the subset of patients who would have not qualified to participate in the investigational arm, but are still considered in your control arm. And this is the entire basis of what we call immortal time bias. Yeah. And this is, so kind of bringing this to the point of making sure that there's a way to operationalize it. This goes, Sash, to your point of thinking about these things, designing it really with these considerations up front and making sure that you've anticipated all of these nuances and controlled as best as possible for those. I wonder if, you, if you've got some other interesting examples when we're thinking about clinical trials and other biases and how they've been managed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I'm coming out with all the positive examples here. <laughs> but the examples that are, the example that I'm going to talk about is Blincyto. It is an immunotherapy. The good news for this particular drug is it did get an accelerated FDA approval back in 2018. But that doesn't mean it is free of biases, but they did some things well. And, and there were some biases that the ODAC that uh, Laura talked about, they identified. So let's quickly go through all of it. So just a little bit of context, right? So Blincyto, like I said, it received its approval in 2018, but it is for the treatment of a particular type of leukemia. So these are patients, leukemia patients who are in remission, but they still contain something called as MRD, minimal residual disease. Now, why is this important? This is important because MRD, think of them as this presence of cancer cells that can only be seen under a microscope. So this MRD is a biomarker. It can literally predict whether the person, the patient who is in remission right now is going to end up with a relapse or not. So it's a very important marker, right? And controlling that MRD, right, is, is very, very important to make it undetectable is very crucial to make sure that these patients don't relapse, right? And that's where Blincyto comes in. So that's what the manufacturers were applying with for indication expansion of Blincyto to treat patients, leukemia patients with an MRD positive, right? And it's very important. The reason why I'm, I'm stressing these things is it, it, two things that are very important. One is the presence of MRD and patients in remission. The second thing is Blincyto is an immunotherapy, but it is also a bridge therapy for patients to eventually get stem cells transplantation, right? So it's, it's a very important thing. And uh, again, the endpoint in this trial is, like I was saying, like, you know, checking for undetectable MRD, right? There should not be any residual disease, those cancer cells left, right? And your conventional ones like overall survival, relapse-free survival, those are the things they were looking for. Now, now, this is the trial itself, but what is the external control here? External control, they were going for to show the efficacy, comparative efficacy, by pulling patients from prior trials, prior Blincyto trials. And important piece to keep in mind, like Laura was mentioning, there is no issue with the countries. They did that very well. So everything was done in Europe. So that part, they did a good job. The one thing is the time period. So the external control time period is dated, similar to what Laura was talking about. So the time period is 2000 to 2014, whereas the trial itself happened you know, in much uh, later period, so 2014 onwards. So 
there is there is that temporal bias there. And uh, I think I'm, I'm combining the things that they did and they did not do well. I'm going to separate them out. So what are the biases here? Let's quickly talk about that. So three types of biases. First one is um, selection bias, right? So they, you know, they all, uh, so the two groups, the treatment versus the control one, the treatment one contained patients in different remission stages, whereas the control did not contain any patients in remission two and remission three. So again, right, you're not selecting your two groups, which can lead to selection bias. The second one is confounding bias. I kept talking about hematopoietic stem cell, stem cell transplant. That is very important because that is a huge confounding factor. That's what the ODAC identified. So when they ran analysis with hematopoietic stem cell transplant and without, you could clearly see, right? The Kaplan-Meier curves were clearly separated out. So you could see that it's a huge confounding factor. So there's confounding bias. That is the second thing. Third thing is temporal bias. Like I was saying, the time periods, the control was much dated, whereas the trial is, you know, in, in the uh, later time period. So that is one thing. And then the follow-up periods, right? The, the follow-up periods were not consistent between the therapy, the investigation, the control. So three types of biases. Things that they did well were, you know, they controlled for immortal time bias, the one that Laura discussed in detail in her example. So they controlled for that. Second thing they were very careful about is choosing the control arm itself, the geography, basically. They were all European trials. So they did a good job there. So those are the two things, kind of talking about both positive and negative. But in the end, like I said, in spite of this, the drug got approved, accelerated approval. So that's the very good news there. That, well, that definitely is the good news there. And it's interesting, the different approaches to manage to manage through the different biases. And so I'm, I'm interested in understanding, it sounds like we've talked a good bit about managing and, and pre-planning as part of the design stage, but what happens if you realize, hey, we, we missed something? Can that bias be managed once you start analysis? So, so yes, design stage is what is the preferred approach in uh, managing bias, right? In like the way I mentioned much earlier, randomization and blinding are some of the tools that we have in a randomized clinical trial that take care of all this, what we call residual confounding bias, right? Mm -hmm. Residual confounding. The other biases that really you, so, so in the absence of randomization and blinding, we need to, we need to fall back on these other stats methodology that could get us there to some degree, because it all depends upon how complete your data is. So assuming that you have complete information on most, on all the covariates or what we call confounding covariates, you can do some very sophisticated analysis and adjust for, for these biases. So selection bias, confounding bias, you can do propensity score analysis, do matching, do stratification, all this inverse probability kind of weighting. So you can do all these different kinds of uh, methods and get an estimate that what we call is an adjusted or a weighted estimate uh, by accounting for all these confounders. At the end of the day, you will still have residual unmeasured confounding, which, which you really cannot adjust for in any ways. Unless, like the way I said, you have measured the confounder. So if you do not have information on an unmeasured confounder, then there's nothing you can do. 
And that is what randomization gives you, you know, unmeasured confounding is addressed for. So, so in that regard, having a, a complete database to do all these adjustments for all your covariates would help in at the analysis stage. Misclassification is a slightly harder bias because uh, misclassification occurs based on how you have coded a particular outcome or a particular covariate. And it's hard to tell where exactly the bias lies. And you cannot really tell whether it's whether it's favoring the investigational drug or favoring the control, right? So that is a little hard to manage. And that would be best if you can do something at the design stage. So have processes in place, have a good abstraction platform, select a real-world database that is focusing on minimizing this misclassification bias so that so that the data that you have, you have complete trust in. And so studies that have good validation studies that have done validation of the outcomes is how you can minimize this misclassification bias. At the very least, you can do sensitivity analysis of, and what you do over there is you say that, oh, I, f- I think that I have so much of, uh, so much of understanding that, you know, a 20% chance that this might be misclassified. And so then you vary your, your, uh, your scale and you see how that might affect your, your misclassification bias, your analysis. So it is kind of a sensitivity analysis. Excellent. Well, I think Throughout this discussion, I think we, we as, lo- as well as our audience, have learned a great bit around the different biases, the challenges. I love getting some examples. But ultimately, we need to think back to how do we ensure that we, along with the, the biopharmaceutical sponsors, are bringing these innovative medicines to patients as quickly and as safely as possible. So, as we think about that, I'm going to pose one last question to each of you. And, and Sasha, I'm going to have you. If you had to pick two things to, to really recommend as a client or as a sponsor is looking at, at their clinical trial program to manage and address bias, what would be the two things that you would suggest? So I'm going to talk a little bit about future looking things because throughout the podcast, we covered what are the things that are in practice? What are the things you could be doing? from a statistical rigor and uh, you know the reproducibility standpoint. But slightly out of the box thinking, because we are, uh, all our sponsors are global sponsors, right? They have global teams working on all of this together. So kind of focusing on that aspect. And then the second thing is how can they use automation and intelligence? We, we live in the world of GPTs and LLMs now, right? How can they leverage all of that? So it's a little bit of a futuristic approach that uh, I'm going to cl- like to close out with. So two things I'd like to talk about. First thing is there's this concept of some integrated evidence planning that's taking a lot of, you know, a momentum where, you know, uh, it's, it's mainly where global teams come together and start planning. So a lot of those, if you can plan ahead at the beginning of the trial phase and taking all the way up through to launch, you'll be very well situated. So if you have, you know, some digital tools where you could bring all of your global teams together and start planning, you can stay stay tightly coordinated by following everything we've talked about throughout this podcast, right? Do everything at the design phase, but just have the transparency with all your teams, right? And not just working in smaller silos. So that's the, the, that's the first one. Have a digital tool to do all of your planning ahead of time in an integrated evidence fashion. The second thing 
um, is there's a lot of power in mining your historic data. Again, we know all our mothers are running hundreds of trials and all the time in like focused TAs, disease indication, a lot of that, a lot of the time it is about uh, indication expansion, right? So you probably, every sponsor probably is sitting on tons of data in the past that they could mine, right? So having, using your LLMs and other intelligent method to look in the past, hey, can I analyze my prior submission packages? And what are the questions I got from, you know, FDA, ODAC, the different committees? Can I store all of that and mine on that? And even before when I'm designing, I am using that to inform not, not just my design, but throughout, right? Can I do something proactive like that? These are slightly out of the box thinking, but we live in the age of, you know, data and automation. So why not? Why not, you know, use what you have to your advantage to set yourself up, to design better trials, to minimize bias, and to fast track the entire, you know, development uh, timeline. So yeah. those are some of my aspirational thinking. <laughs> I love that. I, I love the idea of being creative of, of the data that we use and what we can learn from the data that we already have. All right, Laura, it's to you now. What, what would be your two suggestions, recommendations for a life science sponsor? So to have a successful application, or whether it's an ECA or a clinical trial, do not spring a surprise on the regulatory agencies. So whether it's the EMA or the FDA, the primary thing that we uh, that I saw as a stats reviewer was sponsors completing the entire trial and then submitting the data to the FDA. So I would say engage with the FDA early and often. Tell them what your plans are, what is your design, how you're uh, addressing uh, this entire trial design, what kind of sources you're considering and why. And so engaging with the FDA early and uh, often gives you the chance of getting feedback at every stage of the process and uh, not uh, doing all these grave uh, mistakes which show up only at the end, which at that point are really irreversible because you've already looked at the outcomes, you have compromised the integrity and you cannot uh, go back and undo that and so do it early and upfront and my second suggestion is that it is not something that is uh, insurmountable that all these biases are not are not relevant only to an ECA we have the same kinds of biases even in a randomized clinical trial selection bias you have it misclassification bias yeah you have it confounding and blinding is the only one that is not present but then you can even have bias because of blinding because most oncology trials are not blinded so so then the question is, if they are present in RCTs, how do they get away with it? And the answer to that is planning ahead, designing designing a well-controlled trial. Just because it is randomized doesn't mean that the trial will be robust and have integrity. Even though it is randomized clinical trial, you have to put in the effort to minimize bias at the design and the conduct stage. Only then you get this unbiased estimate of the treatment effect. So take the learnings from the randomized clinical trial and apply them to your ECA. It is very much doable and you can have a successful application if you put this into practice. Excellent. I think those were some fantastic recommendations and it's interesting. It's almost as though we're coming full circle, right? We're looking to leverage real world data and real world evidence to accelerate our clinical trials. But in order to do that, don't forget everything we've learned and what we already have based upon our experience with clinical trials. So the same approaches, 
And even Sash, from your point, tapping into that data that's already there from clinical trials. I think the other piece, and this goes back to where we started, is you know, all of this planning that you both talked about and managing and really the transparency, I think definitely produces then that evidence, that research, that package that builds trust and confidence in, in not only how those biases have been addressed and managed, but ultimately what is being brought forward for patients. So with that, I want to thank you both for a fantastic conversation and continue to, to suggest to our listeners out there to, to dig in a bit more into the blogs themselves. And as always, we're always happy to have a conversation. So feel free to reach out to any of us too. With that, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk with everyone soon. Thank you. Cheers, Andy. Bye, Shesh. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.